executive information so that we can bear witness not to the puzzle that we're piecing together about everything that God's doing in the world so much as the picture that Christ is painting as He comes back to redeem His own in the world. So when your life gets rocked, you're going to need an interlude. You're going to have one whether you like it or not. You're going to need a humble servant's heart. You're going to need from time to time to be recommissioned as Christ's witness. You need a divine perspective when your perspective has been brought down by the earth dwellers that reject kingdom come and our ruler, His majesty, our Lord. You need verses like Revelation 10 and 7 before it. So if you don't need this now, I hope that you'll file away the text today and remember that when the plans in your life get providentially paused or parked, that God's power and His purpose and His pleasure for you are still as sure as the sunrise. This is my 20th year this month on staff at this church. And I've, I've preached about 646 sermons on Sunday. I counted, it's right around there. It depends on if I missed a vacation Sunday. Probably counting like funerals and conferences. Probably preached a thousand sermons. And I was just trying to impose this sermon on myself this week before I preached it and pause and think about where I've come from, where I've been. And I just want to tell you, if you've been here for 20 years, I'm really sorry for the first 10. <laughs> so I tell you right out as I was reflecting, I'm really sorry. And if you've, if you've come in the last 10 and, and there's anything about the preaching that's improved, you should really write a thank you note to the people that endured the first 10 because there's nothing that we do that we're just immediately good at or even, therefore, altogether faithful in. We need our guides, and we need time, we need reps. Um, and I just, I just was meditating, kind of pausing, trying to force a pause on my life and think a little bit as I was preparing for today. And these days, we, we have sermon cards, and we prepare series, and we try to think deeply about God's Word, and we invite you into that process, and we have multiple preachers. We find ourselves with a book stall full of resources to try to aid and abet that process. So I was thinking about this 16th sermon from Revelation, and there'll probably be 30 of them. I thought it's not too late to jump in and grab one of these Scripture journals if you haven't already. We have about eight of them left at the Welcome Center, and if you'd like to get one today, I don't even know what they sell for, honestly, at cost, but they're neat because you can turn in here to the text itself and then write notes down beside it. And one of the reasons things like this are helpful is because... We are taking the text, the Bible, verse by verse. We are working through whole books. We're doing our, our level best to take the text as it comes and to be at times surprised by the applications that come to us. We, we must fight perennially the urge to think we've just sort of got this thing figured out. Now, we certainly have things that we've got figured out. But God wants to feed you by His Word, amen, every single time that you... you you drink from this fount. You feed from this word. Every time, he wants to give you something that's apt for the day. He wants to help you through the day. He wants to help you through your life. And so at times, we just have to be paused enough to be reminded of that. And so as we look at God's word today in chapter 10, I want you to notice that within this dramatic pause between the, the blowing of the sixth and the seventh trumpet by the sixth and the seventh angel, I want you to consider God's power to conceal some words. He doesn't tell us everything in verses 1 to 4. 
I want you to consider in verses 5 to 7 God's pleasure to reveal His Word. And then finally in verses 8 through 11, God's purpose to unseal this Word. So we're going to see in verses 1 to 4 God's power to conceal some words. In verses 5 to 7, God's pleasure to reveal His Word. And then in verses 8 through 11, God's purpose to unseal this Word. So let's, let's consider this text now by first just reading it straight through. Revelation chapter 10, verse 1. Then I saw another mighty angel coming down from heaven, wrapped in a cloud with a rainbow over his head, and his face was like the sun and his legs like pillars of fire. He had a little scroll open in his hand, and he set his right foot on the sea and his left foot on the land, and called out with a loud voice like a lion roaring. When he called out, the seven thunders sounded. And when the seven thunders had sounded, I was about to write, but I heard a voice from heaven saying, Seal up what was what the seven thunders have said, and do not write it down. Verse 5. And the angel whom I saw standing on the sea and on the land raised his right hand to heaven and swore by him who lives forever and ever and created heaven and what is in it and the earth and what is in it and the sea and what is in it that there would be no more delay but that in the days of the trumpet call to be sounded by the seventh angel the mystery of God would be fulfilled just as he announced to his servants the prophets and the voice that I had heard from heaven spoke to me again saying Go take the scroll that is open in the hand of the angel who is standing on the sea and on the land. So I went to the angel and told him to give me the little scroll. And he said to me, Take and eat it. It will make your stomach bitter, but in your mouth it will be sweet as honey. And I took the little scroll from the hand of the angel and ate it. It was sweet as honey in my mouth, but when I had eaten it, my stomach was made bitter." And I was told, you must again prophesy about many peoples and nations and languages and kings. Now pause and glance at the text a little more. I want to give you some context. Chapter 11 continues the interlude, talking about two witnesses and three and a half years. That is for the next time that I preach. I do want to note, though, by looking at the second and then the third woe with the seventh angel blowing his trumpet, I want you to see that that occurs in chapter 11, verse 15. Just briefly look down at 11:15 and notice, Then the seventh angel blew his trumpet, and there were loud voices, and kingdom comes. This is the end of time. That's the end. So there's this dramatic pause in chapters 10 and 11 before chapter 11, verse 15. I also want to inter interject to you by inference that if you turn back and look at our focus passage today, that there's some concealing about things that, are, that is spoken of in chapter 10, verse 4, and there's a final revelation of things in chapter 11, verse 15. But there seems to be more meditation on what goes on in this particular epic beginning in verse 5. So if you look down at the text again at chapter 10, verse 4, you're going to see we, what, when the seven thunders sounded, John was about to write, but then he heard a voice that stopped him and said, seal it up, don't write it. So it's, it's, it's like John saw something he couldn't write. And this is not uncommon with the writing prophets. We see things like this with Habakkuk or, or Ezekiel. We see these sorts of comments made with Daniel. Now, this is not uncommon. There's something seen that isn't, it isn't right to go ahead and put in Revelation. So that, that kind of packs into our first point this morning, God's power to conceal some words. He doesn't tell you everything that you'd like to know about everything that you'd like to know. Uh, that may sound obvious, but it gets to the heart 
of our rebellion against God little by little because we expect that God's going to tell us not just what we need to know but what we want to know and we expect in our hubris that we know what we need to know and what we just want to know. But the fact of the matter is, according to our doctrine of the sufficiency of Scripture, which isn't a made-up doctrine, it's a biblical doctrine, everything you need to know is right here. As one pastor said, if you want to hear God speak in an audible voice, then open your Bible and read it out loud. Now then you've heard God speak audibly. I would like to let you know this morning that by coming to church and hearing the word read by our service leaders, the word sang by our song leaders, lyrically and preached and read here by me, what you have done is you have heard from God. God has spoken, and God's speech never returns void. God makes His people by His revealed words. But He doesn't tell you everything you need to know. I'm sorry, everything you want to know. It does tell you everything you need to know. And I'll tell you, that is a hard truth for me. It has been, it perennially is, it might be for you as well, I would surmise. Chapter 10, verse 4 says that John was told to seal it up and not to reveal what, what the seven thunders have said. Don't write it down, the very end thing. We need to be careful and humble about our prognostication about the end of time. The Bible says that no man knoweth the hour nor the day. We have liberty with regard to what we call eschatology or what we believe about the end of time and last things. We have that intentionally written into our church's constitution. It's not because we're too weak to take a stand. Trust me, we've taken stands on more controversial things than your eschatology. We intentionally don't take a stand on your eschatology or your doctrine of last things because we believe that there is a whole lot of stuff that isn't quite exactly precisely revealed about the end. And so from the onset, from the very beginning rather of this series, I would say it that way, we talked about different views of revelation, whether you're an historicist or a partial preterist or if you're an idealist or a futurist. We talked about these views, but we didn't say you must believe strictly in one of these views in order to be a member of this church or that this is the way. We don't do that. And for churches that do that, that's between them and the Lord. We have chosen this particular path, and we don't even think it's the path of least resistance because then, now then there might be different views within the church and then you have to sort of defend your view or at least honor your view as you're studying Scripture. You might be open to have your view shaped or changed based on the clear teaching of the Word of God. But suffice to say, we have good biblical data about the fact that we don't have all the data that we might want to know. We just have all the data we need to know. And boy, what a stumbling block for us, isn't it? I'm reminded of a verse in the Bible that it, 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 my Sunday school teacher when I was a child had me memorize, and I didn't quite value it then like I do now. It's, it's Deuteronomy 29, 29. You might want to jot this one down. It's such a helpful verse. The secret things belong to the Lord. It's His property. That which He conceals is His. It's His alone. But the things that are revealed, they belong to us and to our children forever that we may do all the words of this law. And so we're sort of faced at a crossroads when we come to the Word as to whether we're basically going to figure out why we believe it's true or why we're basically going to figure out how to disprove any truth that might be found in it. We're basically at a crossroads when we come to this book. Because what is revealed is for our children. We're supposed to lead them in family worship time and tell them these words and read them out loud and bring them to church and rear them in the faith. We're supposed to do all those things. But too often, we focus instead of on the revealed words, we focus on that which is concealed. We prognosticate. We imagine. And we sort of create 
what it is that we think the Word says or what we want the Word to say by inferences that are not even logical, let alone theological. And I want to warn you against that this morning because God has the power to conceal some words. That's our first point. He has the power to conceal some words. Look at Revelation chapter 10 once more. Let, his, let, let us meditate, even let's ruminate, let's consider the description of this mighty angel. Now, I'll just tell you here, without a whole lot of time to get into it this morning, there is some discussion amongst believers as to whether this, is, this mighty angel is a way of talking about Christ himself or this is an angel. And it comes down to this interpretation of the Greek word alas, which is translated here, translated here another, and that doesn't automatically solve the riddle. But I'm, I'm going to sort of go with it as this is kind of a mighty angel. Think, think Michael or Gabriel, but I'm not totally sure because Revelation chapter 5 sure uses a lot of the same language as Revelation chapter 10, and Revelation chapter 5 seems to be Christ the Lamb. So I'm not sure. I'm sort of kind of going back and forth between some of my favorite thinkers here, so I'm not going to solve that one for you this morning. I'm just going to go ahead and preach it as if it's a mighty angel. It isn't Christ himself. But, let, but let's go forward and see. This mighty angel coming down from heaven, if this is a, is a mighty angel created by God, how, much, how, how majestic is God? If God can make an angel that can span from heaven to earth, how big is your God? I mean, that's the imagery that's supposed to be brought to bear here of this picture because look at what it says. It says that he's wrapped in a cloud. So he's got a cloak, a cloud for a cloak. He's got a rainbow over his head. Rainbow since Genesis 9 has meant God's restraining grace not to give us what we deserve with his punishment. And I will say today, woe to him who calls good evil and evil good and woe to him who uses biblical pictures for evil when they're actually good. This rainbow over his head is his hat, and what it's meant to describe is God's mercy on you, not to drown you in the waters of judgment yet. Take it for what it is. This is a mighty, mighty angel. His face is like the sun, his legs like pillars of fire. Plenty of biblical imagery there. Verse 2, he had a little scroll open in his hand. It'd have to be a little scroll right, if it could be eaten, first of all, but it'd have to be a little scroll compared to this massive angel. So by comparison, it's diminutive, it's small. It's open in his hand. He set right foot on the sea, left in the land. So, you know, my daughter who, who studies Greek mythology and, and reads uh, fictional works, fantasy books, she reminded me that God's created angel symbolizes that God is greater than all three of the biggest Greek and Roman gods combined, the God of the skies and the seas and the earth, Zeus, Poseidon, and Hades. So thank you for the extra. And this angel symbolizes that God is bigger than the biggest gods you've got in your day too. What are your gods that you've made so big? So we thought about that a little bit as we were reading this text this, this week and kind of preparing for today. Uh, money. I mean, is, I mean we, we know that the pantheon of Greek gods are false, however good they make for stories, right? But money is our God. Technology, if I can just get the right technology, if we can just come up with the right technology, can preserve our lives. Power itself. What are your gods that you're tempted by? And remember, the one true God is mighty over them all. This mysteriously powerful God is not at the behest of us. And that actually, ironically, frees us. The fact that there's some mystery about Him, about His majesty, it ironically frees us to worship Him. 
Who among us would worship a God that we could control, fully explain? You can trust Him. You don't have to peddle in these little bitty gods with a little G of, of looking after your own self-interest or, or winning or conquering in life or, or rebelling and reviling against good authority figures evermore or, or lurching evermore after more stuff. Your crowns can be laid down metaphorically at the foot of the cross. You can nip at one another no more. You don't have to bite at one another anymore. You can love one another because of the majesty of our God, who is greater than this description of this great angel, apparently. And you know that love one another instead of nipping at one another? You know how important that is? Because as the nations rage, they see, according to Scripture, they see the love that we have for one another. And what a bearing of false witness when we live as if we don't love one another. This gospel not only calls us to, but gives us a vision for a picture of Christ's church that cares deeply and affectionately for one another, regardless of our differences in style, earning, dress, experience, education, regardless of our differences in gender, height, weight, personality. The tie that binds us together is Christ. It's Him crucified. It's resurrection Easter Sunday every Sunday and every day in between. God's power to conceal some words is for your good because it drives out idols of knowing it all. It drives out the idolatry of I'm more clever than you. That will get you where you're going because Christ is at the heart of such spiritual humility. I want to share something that I've read. I'll set my Bible down for just a moment. I have profited so much this year from an old book by Charles Spurgeon, a daily devotional, the checkbook of the bank of faith. Some of the kids here today don't even know what a checkbook is probably, but for those of us over a certain age, we at least know what a checkbook is, let alone that we ought to balance the thing. But I've, I, it's just treasures upon treasures. He said here in, on April 14th, he said, quoting Psalm 47:4, "A wiser mind than your own arranges your destiny. A wiser mind than your own, than our own, arranges our destiny." He said, "We not only know doctrines about him, but we know him. He is our father and our friend. Isn't that beautiful? This glorious, glorious picture of our Lord. That, that He has chosen to make some things known to us. But we, we still need to hold on to the fact that there are concealed things because He's so majestic. He's so majestic. He's not just your friend, He's your Father. Spurgeon wrote on his April 9th entry, He who has the Word of God dwelling in him richly is neither stumbled by prosperity, as so many are, nor crushed by adversity, as others have been. For he lives beyond the changing circumstances of external life. How helpful is that? He lives beyond the changing circumstances of external life. As you hear these, these, these times talked about, these trumpets being blown in Revelation, 
you realize external circumstances are going to be ebbing and flowing throughout our lives, throughout this time. And Revelation is telling us that we can live lives that are beyond the changing circumstances of, each, of external life because we have a vision for the life that is to come and we have a purpose while we are here. We don't have to be stumbled by prosperity nor crushed by adversity. I just had to quote Spurgeon today because, well, anytime you quote Spurgeon, the sermon gets better. He's just that good. The Checkbook of Faith by Charles Spurgeon. What powerful words. So our first point this morning, wrapped up in verses 1 to 4, is God's power to conceal some words. But let's, let's consider now God's pleasure, His wanton pleasure to reveal His Word. He hasn't concealed everything. He's told us things that we need to know. And so let us consider God's pleasure now to reveal His Word. Reconsider by looking at Revelation 10, beginning in verse 5. Right after the sealing up, and I'm saying the skipping up to chapter 11, verse 15, for the opening of the seventh seal, or the seventh trumpet, rather, the sounding of the seventh trumpet, we look at verse 5, and it's as if there's more to be said. So remember, concurrent, not necessarily consecutive. It says in verse 5, And the angel whom I saw standing on the sea and the land raised his right hand to heaven. So this, this mighty angel swears under, earth, under oath, I swear to tell the whole truth and nothing but the truth, so help me God. Is that kind of a thing. He swears under oath, and verse 6 says, the, the one who lives forever, he swears by, who created heaven and what is in it, the earth and what is in it, and the sea and what is in it, and there would be no more delay. Now, after, you might say, well, this solves it. It's got to be an angel. It can't be Christ. Well, that's true, but, but God swears by himself for which no one is greater, and that's recorded in the book of Exodus to, or of Deuteronomy as well. And so I'm not sure. Actually, it is Exodus. I've got two different verses toggling in my head, but it's Exodus. But nevertheless, it doesn't solve it. But I'm still leaning toward this being a created mighty angel. Verse 7 then says, But in that day of the trumpet call to be sounded by the seventh angel, the, the, the mystery of God would be fulfilled just as he announced to his servants the prophets. Now, I want to unpack verses 5 through 7 as kind of a microcosm of all three of my points now within verse 2. So we've talked about what's concealed. We're now talking about his pleasure to reveal. And finally, we're going to talk at the end about his purpose to unseal his word. But within this second point, his good pleasure to reveal his word, I want you to see the flower of this whole sermon right here in these three verses. Look at verse 5 again. And the angel whom I saw standing on the sea and the land raised his right hand to heaven, and he swears by... There's nothing greater than God, right? I mean, we need to be careful saying things like, I swear to God. It's a big deal when you come under oath. You're, by the way, your words matter so much. They matter so, so very much. You need to be careful what you say. Uh, you need to be quiet until you have something to say. There's too many people um, that, that don't have anything to say and say it anyway. Uh, we really need to meditate on our words. Uh, this text reminds us of that. My devotion this morning was from Ecclesiastes chapter 5. reminds us to let our words be few. We need to be very careful about spewing words to one another, about spewing words on social media. We need to be very intentional about what we say. You say, well, that's just for all you people that are kind of concerned and overly concerned about words. No, no, God says you're supposed to be concerned about your words. You're not supposed to be unconscientious about what you say. Said no scripture text anywhere. You're supposed to be deeply concerned about your speech patterns. The Bible says, let no corrupt talk come out of your mouth but only that which is good for edifying. You're not supposed to have a shop talk and a spiritual talk. 
You're not supposed to let the sun go down on your anger. You're supposed to, as far as you're capable, live a peaceful life with other people. To make your, your ambition to live at peace with other people. This gets down to how you speak. And if God hasn't already said enough about your ethics with your speech, consider what a premium he places on his own divine speech. Our service leader read about Genesis 1, about the creation. How does God create? But by a word. He says, let it be, and it was. Words have power, and they matter. Our speeching matters because God is a wordy God, and He's teaching us to be concerned about our words. I've learned that over the last 20 years of preaching. I, I know one thing today. I am much more careful about the words that I say. And you say, well, well, don't write down sermons. That makes a preacher boring. No, it doesn't. It makes a preacher precise. Write down things to be precise. Stop it with the fanfare. I don't want to say something that's sacrilegious. It should be tested against Scripture. And when I speak to you, it should be concise. Colossians 4 says that we should be clear. Don't you want a preacher that's dripping Bible instead of blathering words? I mean, that's what I want to be. When I'm an old guy, if I, if I live a long life, I may not, but if I live a long life when I'm old, I hope the sermons are more like, like bleeding out Bible put together than they are today. That's what we want. That's what, what's what you want. That's what we want in discipling. That's what you need. This word was given to you by God's good pleasure. And it's given to you for you and also for you to share. We'll get to that in a moment. I want, I'm going to look again. I told you this is kind of a microcosm of the whole sermon. It says that he swears by the Lord. And it says here that in verse, uh, verse, the end of verse 6, there will be no more delay. That Greek word is chronos, where we get our English word chronology. There will be no more delay in time. There won't be more delay. So there's going, to be, there's going to be an execution of the Lord's decree that's right on time. He's timely. When the Bible says that we are uh, to rejoice because this is the day that the Lord has made and we shall rejoice and be glad in it. We need to realize that God made this day in a particular vision of time and that God made time and that we are, not, we are bowed by time, but, not, but time is not somehow the enemy. God is in complete control of the number of your days and the number of all days. Time is not something that God is out of control of. We're not open theists. Time's not happening to God. God is happening to time. He's going to bring everything to a climactic conclusion. And so it says here, and I just a couple more things about this microcosm, and then we'll get back to going to point two, three, and finale. But, but look at, at verse number, number seven, then it says, after no more delay, it says, but in the days of the trumpet call to be sounded by the seventh angel, think of, of Jericho and Joshua, think of the trumpets, and think of the enemies of God being overcome. And it says, when the seventh angel sounds in revelatory, in revelation terms, when the final analysis of things is called for when there's no more waiting, but the end of time has come, when heaven and earth are united, when the enemies of God are cast to a sinner's hell, and when the friends of God are at the marriage feast of a lamb and in God's presence forevermore, it says the mystery of God would be fulfilled. The mystery of God would be fulfilled. That word fulfilled is from the same word family that we use for our children's ministry, teleos. That means complete, final, having reached the goal. Perfect. And so when it says it's fulfilled, that means everything comes to its perfection, to its completion. Same word family. He had other Greek words at his disposal. He used that word there. 
that mean fulfilled or something like it. So it's a specific kind of fulfilling. And then it says, just as he announced to his servants the prophets, that word announced is an interesting word. It's not probably what you think it is. It's the word that's often translated in the New Testament as gospel. It's euangelizo here. It's a verb to gospel or to announce. And in chapter 14, as we'll read momentarily, it actually uses the noun form where it says gospel. So there's a missional aspect to the announcements made to the prophets, the Lord's servants. And we are the Lord's servants too. So I told you a microcosm. I wanted to kind of put that in there and then come back to it. So let us now consider our second point, that it's God's pleasure to reveal His Word. Look at verse 5. It says that the angel whom spanned all of this swore by the Lord and said there won't be any more delay when the time comes. And he says that in the days of a trumpet call to be sounded by the seventh angel, that God's mystery would be teleost, it would be fulfilled. So time is in God's hands. You don't have to be bothered. You don't even need to be bothered by what's concealed that you don't know. Know everything you can about what God has revealed, not only in His creation, but especially by His special revelation, His Word. Know everything that you can and understand that it is His pleasure to give you what He's given you and that time is on His side. So, so when you have these pauses in your life to reflect on the, the, the hook of the whole sermon, you have these pauses, remember that God's not caught off guard by our sense of timing, by our sense of pacing. Right? You know, we just want to go, 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 go. I mean, we, we have problems with Revelation 10 types because we want to jump right, right from 8 to 11. I mean, we want it all done. But that's not, there's time, there's spacing for a reason. And it's, it is to bring the fullness of time in God's economy to bear. Listen to Deuteronomy. I'm going to read a couple of verses that are relevant to this, directly or indirectly. Listen to Deuteronomy 32, 39 through 41. This is Deuteronomy chapter 32, verses 39 through 31. So not too far after the verses I read a few minutes ago. It says, See now that I, even I, am He, and that there is no God beside me. I kill and I make alive, I wound and I heal, and there is none that can deliver out, out of my hand. For I lift up my hand to heaven and swear as I live forever. If I, so the Lord can swear by Himself. If I sharpen my flashing sword and hold my hand... And, and my hand takes hold of, on judgment, I will take vengeance on my adversaries and will repay those who hate me. So there's a repayment for the haters of God that's coming. And, and that's kind of bitter and sweet for us. We wish everybody would be saved, but we can't contravene the good purposes of God. And so we know that somehow in God's righteousness that His vindication is good. But this particular passage shows you something of swearing on an oath. It's interesting that Deuteronomy 32 is kind of the finale of Moses' life. And you have the end of the giving of the law, followed by a song being sung here, followed by a kind of priestly blessing being offered to the people of God. It kind of is a bit of a way of thinking about how we worship today. Look at Daniel chapter 12. Swore by him who lives forever. Surely Daniel 12, 5 through 13 is in view when John the Revelator is receiving this revelation, as the book is so titled, on the island of Patmos. Isaiah, Jeremiah, Lamentations, Ezekiel, Daniel, right before Hosea. 
And so between what we call the major for the bigger and the minor for the smaller sized prophetic books, the writing prophets, we have the end of Daniel. And it says in Daniel chapter 12, verse 5, and we'll just take you all the way home with this, the end of this book. Then I, Daniel, looked, and behold, two others stood, one on this bank of the stream and one on, the, on that bank of the stream. And someone said to the man clothed in linen who was above the waters of the stream, How long? How long shall it be, or how long shall it be till the end of these wonders? And I heard the man clothed in linen who was above the waters of the stream. He raised his right hand and his left toward heaven and swore by him who lives forever that it would be for a time, times, and half a time, and that when the shattering of the power of the holy people comes to an end, all these things would be finished. Finished. I heard, but I did not understand. Then I said, O my Lord, what shall be the outcome of these things. And he said, go your way, Daniel, for the words are shut up and sealed until the time of the end. Many shall purify themselves and make themselves white and be refined, but the wicked shall act wickedly, and none of the wicked shall understand, but those who are wise shall understand. O learners, hear. He who has an ear to hear, let him hear and understand. Verse 11, And from the time that the regular burnt offering is taken away and the abomination that makes desolation is set up, there shall be 1,290 days. Blessed is he who waits and arrives at the 1,335 days. We'll talk about days in the next sermon. But for now, I want to focus on the former verses in Daniel 12 and this very final verse, 13. The end of Daniel says, But go your way till the end, and you shall rest and shall stand in your allotted place at the end of the days. Isn't that a beautiful verse? You go your way. It's not just for Daniel. It's a wonderful promise for all the people of God. Go your way till the end. You'll find rest and you'll stand in your allotted place at the end of the days. Is that enough? Is it enough? Because if you want more, you may be getting over into the concealed things. Is what's revealed is enough? God never forgets his people. We're going to see when we get into the next chapter, God never forgot Moses. He appears on the Mount of Transfiguration 1,400 years later. He never forgot Elijah. Elijah shows up 800 years later and shows up on the Mount of Transfiguration. God never forgets Daniel. He never forgets you. He never forgets his people. He doesn't forget Esther. He doesn't forget Rahab. He doesn't forget his men and women. He doesn't forget his martyred boys and girls. He doesn't forget us. And that is a wonderful Wonderful truth. God's pleasure it is to reveal His Word to us. We see that in Daniel. And we also uh, see it prized right here in Revelation. I told you a moment ago about the gospel and how it's used in Revelation. It doesn't have to be used a lot to carry a powerful meaning. It's only used twice, the word is. But it's used in chapter 10, announcement, and it's used in chapter 14, gospel. Look back, look over at Revelation with me and turn to Revelation 14, verses 6 and 7. And it, and it says something else about angels. It says, Then I saw another angel flying directly overhead with an eternal gospel, an eternal euangelion, an eternal announcement to proclaim to those who dwell on earth. And it says, To, to proclaim to those who dwell on earth, to every nation and tribe and language and people. So to all the earth dwellers, which is a way of explaining the rebels against God, and it, there's, the, there's a fourfold imagery to describe all the completion of all the people, every nation, tribe, language, and people. And then in verse 7, there's a fourfold imagery to describe all of the creation. It says, And he said with a loud voice, Fear God and give him glory, because the hour of his judgment has come, and worship him who made heaven and earth. So fear, give, worship him who made heaven and earth. That's what we're supposed to say to the unbelievers. And it says he made heaven, earth, sea, and springs of water. So all of creation is summed up in verse 7. 
And all of the people is summed up in verse 6 with this, this fourfold ends of the earth totality kind of quad that is used in Revelation to describe such things. And so here, this word gospel is announcement back in, in chapter 10. And the connotation is that we have a message to proclaim to the earth dwellers. We have a message to proclaim to the earth dwellers. Now, if this sounds like something you've read in the Gospels, it's because it is. You remember in Matthew 24 and like unto it, Matthew 13, that this Gospel will be taken to all nations and then what? The end will come. So time is reckoned with the progress of the gospel. It's going to go to the nations, and then the end will come. Now, I'm not, trying to, I'm not trying to tell you your eschatology. I'm just trying to inform your eschatology by saying that gospel proclamation proceeds until the end. That much we must agree on. And so this gospel proclamation is then thus our mission and mandate. It is ours to bear witness to throughout the days of our lives. And we have to get comfortable with the fact that that is not some ancillary, secondary purpose. Oh yeah, Jan, I feel guilty. I was supposed to share the gospel. I've got business. I've got stuff to do. No, no, no. It's not all oh, yeah, Jan. It's God has you at this time in your place with the revelation you have so that you can share His word, His gospel with whoever you know. That's the point. Time is in his hands. His purpose is his purpose. Consider Ephesians chapter 1, verses 9 and 10. Ephesians 1, 9 and 10. Wonderful, wonderful on this score. Right after Galatians comes Ephesians, and Ephesians 1, 9 and 10 says, "...making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose which he set forth in Christ, as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven, and things on earth." What a wonderful overlay with Revelation 10, right? Things on heaven and things on earth united. The, the plan for the fullness of time to bring us all where we are supposed to go as God's people and to keep the impenitent under oppression and judgment right on through eternity for their rebellion against God. And, and God does nothing without telling His servants the prophets, it says in Amos chapter 3, verse 7. And so Revelation 10 seems to be picking up on that. In Revelation chapter 10, verse 7, when it says, Just as he announced or he gospelized to his servants the prophets. And so let's consider in finale today, verses 8 through 11, God's purpose to unseal this word. I've already sort of spoken about it, that we're to bear witness. But let's consider it a little more fully and then let us complete the sermon today. It says in verse 8, after this statement about how God has revealed His Word to the prophets, His servants. It says in verse 8, Then a voice that John had heard from heaven spoke to me again and said, Go take the scroll that is open in the hand of the angel who is standing on the sea and the land. And so he went, he obeyed the command of the Lord, and he went to the angel and told him to give him the little scroll. And he said to me, Eat it. Take it and eat it. And so we, we should be thinking of Ezekiel now. Uh, Brother Rusty read Ezekiel 2 and 3 earlier in the service. We should be thinking and going back to that lengthy reading he had for confession and assurance because those verses are in mind here clearly. The prophetic writing, the writing prophets throughout the Bible are in mind. And 
It, it, so, and I also ought to say that really the whole of Scripture, because Second Peter chapter 1 carries the freight of saying that all of the prophets have been combined into this book, and this is a more sure word than experiences such as miracles on the Mount of Transfiguration and so on. So there is a strong sense in which this word is to be ingested and digested for you in all of its bitter and sweet parts. There's this recommissioning that we have, same as John is getting recommissioned in this dramatic interlude in Revelation chapter 10. So there is some crossover here application. But let's consider John here as we really wrap up point three. Because God's purpose to unseal His Word is for us, but He's specifically talking to John here. And we've got this book because God revealed Himself to John at the end of the first century A.D. and completed this canon. We have these wonderful words of life. We have nowhere else to go for sustenance spiritually. Look at verse 10. And I took the little scroll from the hand of the angel and ate it. It was sweet as honey in my mouth, but when I had eaten it, my stomach was made bitter. So bitter and sweet words. It's kind of how I titled the sermon. And it says in verse 11, And I was told you must again prophesy, and here's this fourfold, this quad, like I read to you about the gospel in, verse, in chapter 14, verses 6 and 7. It says about many peoples and nations and languages and kings. So what are we to do with this today? Well, God's word, God's time, God's power is all being leveraged to accomplish His purposes. And we are His people, so we're a part of His purpose. We don't have to continue on in our sinful, rebellious ways. We have this wonderful choice because of the illumination of the Holy Spirit within us. We have this wonderful choice to live our lives in obedience for the joy that is given us in Christ. Not to earn our salvation but in this superior gratitude because of what he's done for us. You know, the Bible, or not the Bible, rather, uh, a pastor says that uh, missions exists where worship doesn't. Missions exists where worship doesn't. So you, you, take, you take the gospel, you evangelize, you take your missionaries should go primarily to people groups that don't worship Christ because the whole point of missions is that they would worship Christ. You understand? So missions exists where worship doesn't. We are to support financially, rhetorically, emotionally, and even sometimes with our own feet, being missionaries and sending missionaries to the lost in the world, those that don't worship Christ. It's our everything. It's our everything. Revelation 10, 11 ends with... Everything. It's supposed to go to all these people, and then the end will come. You're not just dangling out here in time, filling space. You're praying for, and hoping for, and giving toward, and laboring for the gospel to go to the ends of the earth. That's your purpose. God's purpose in unsealing this word is to produce in His people living faith that acts, that speaks, that cares that consoles, that shares. I was thinking about how to, how to kind of sum up this, this text because it's, it's a powerful text, but it's a, it's, a, it's a puzzling text too. And I was reading one pastor, and he was talking about this, and he said, if you want to make the people of God feel guilty, uh, just talk to them about 
praying and evangelism because none of us are doing enough of it. I thought it was kind of apt. I mean, none of us are, right? But we're not moralists. I'm not here trying to create some legalistic rubric for how you can feel better about yourself. We need to share the gospel from our heart, and we, we need to truly to pray because we have tasted and seen the, the Lord is good. I, I just want to kind of put it in a different light today. Um, if God's Word was as good to you in the sweetness of your salvation when it came in for you, then God's Word is as good for everybody else in the bitterness of finding the courage to share the hard texts with the people, the earth dwellers out here that haven't yet received the gospel. God's goodness is good, and you can trust Him. Same as you've tasted and seen that the Lord is good, when you are recommissioned to fulfill the Great Commission, perhaps today at this stage in your journey, you're going to see He's good too. He's going to use your feeble efforts as His ambassadors to fulfill His mission, to carry out His purpose until kingdom come. So let's, let's join Him. I wrote this today for conclusion. We learn to trust Him. His compassion is present, though He is vast, though His timing is unknown. His announcement is for us and through us that revealed words are sufficient for our task. We learn to trust Him morning by morning. We learn to trust Him when the flame of life's light flickers down for us. We learn to trust Him when the sight of our eyes dims. We learn to trust Him when the taste of foods become bland. We learn to trust Him more and more, not by power, not by might, but by His Spirit, which the Lord says He's granted us in Zechariah and likewise. He's placed His Spirit within us. I'm reminded of 2 Timothy 1 and 2 for this. Here's how it reads. 2 Timothy 1 8 says, Therefore do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord, but share in suffering for the gospel by the power of God, who saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of His own purpose and grace, which He gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began, and which now has been manifested through the appearing of our Savior, Christ Jesus, who abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. I am not ashamed, for I know whom I have believed, and I am convinced that He is able to guard until that day what has been entrusted to me. You follow the pattern of the sound words that you've heard from me in the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus by the Holy Spirit who dwells within us Guard the good deposit entrusted to you. And like it, 2 Timothy 2.19. But God's firm foundation stands bearing this seal. The Lord knows those who are His. Let us pray.